Yeah. Um, Mo. I was thinking about it, and because I was here last week, and I discovered that there's this kind of irritation level in the mind that can kind of blossom into a complaint or not. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. If I was like more awake to the irritation before it blossomed, it was better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, this is a very wonderful point, Mo. I want to reflect on that a little bit. That uh, Mo is discovering that there's a, a level of irritation in her mind, which I think some people really have as a more or less, um, I don't want to say constant state, but as a substate. People who, they're more anxious types than other types. They're more irritable types than other types. It's not to say, you know, like that's a, uh, somehow a moral flaw. I, I, I think it's a genetic thing that, that uh, some people will say about themselves, I have a short fuse, or I'm very, you know, I'm an, I'm an anxious type, when in doubt, worry. And they often go with each other, you know, that, that the... the hmm? High strung. High strung, yeah, high strung, you know. But, and they, they, they get a bad rap about them, like there's a perfect way to come out. Not high strung, not anxious, not worrisome, not irritable. But the truth is, anybody who has had more than one child knows that everybody comes out with a certain substrate, isn't it? That you can tell on day two how that person is going to be, more or less. Really, isn't that true? Uh, it doesn't mean that they're reprehensible. It's part of their, it's part of their genetic code. Some people are easily irritable. <laughs> Yeah. Some just don't react. And That's right. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm thinking of my grandchildren. I have one that if you turned on the vacuum cleaner, it was a calamity. You know, that, you know, <laughs> that, uh, and, you know and other people, pff, doesn't bother them. They do tests on babies when they're born. You know they do app cars on babies, so they do all kinds of things to see if they follow and if they startle. And you're supposed to startle. So they, I, the last I knew about that, if you put down the baby, you do like this on either side of it, it's supposed to do like that. And I imagine when they did that on me, if they did that sort of thing, I don't know if they did that in that time, probably like that, because I'm a highly startleable person. I just am. I have very edgy genes. Uh, and, but, you know, and, but I'm also short, and it took me a long time. I don't think they're related to each other, by the way. But, but I, 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 I actually never felt reprehensible about being short, but I actually felt badly about being so jumpy and nervous. But I see it comes with the machinery, and it comes out in all my grandchildren now, actually more con concentrated down the food chain or something. So I'm sorry about that, but you know that. Uh, but also, I think that, that one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot these days is the more that I am able to say out, this is what's true about me, and see it and talk to other people, and they say, oh, yeah, you have that, I have this, you have that, I have that. Everybody's got something. And, that it's, and see that it is not me. It's part of the package. And I don't, have to, I don't have to feel about it that I have to change it or go to a clinic about it. Or, I mean, it's just what it is. Or take a pill. Are you complaining? About it? Yeah. Not anymore, you know? Not anymore. There would have been a time when I would have said, I remember joking about it, said, you know, I'd like to have a mindectomy or a mind transplant with somebody, because I, I meet people, 
don't worry, I have one of my very good friends who's no longer in this world. Didn't worry. I mean, she she just, and I, I knew it about it. She was a couple of, she was a decade, maybe two older than I was. And she had grown children when my children were adolescents and mine had their adolescent problems, their hers had grown children problems. And I remember saying to her, because they had substantial difficulties, I said, aren't you worried about them? She said, no, I'm not worried. She said, I did everything that I could. What's the point of worrying? I mean, that's like such complete, perfect sense, you know? But the people who worry, it's not that they're not sensible or that they're not smart. They also know that worry doesn't make any difference, but their minds worry. And I, I thought, you know, if I could just, but you get what you get, I think. Uh, but the more you talk about it, um, the more you talk about it, the, 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 the somehow, remember we used to have groups of people in different, in different uh, hindrance groups, where are the people with lust, where are the people with short fuses? Do you ever remember that? Mm -hmm. well, we'll talk about it again. It'll come around. I want to make sure we do this. How, uh, how about other... There you go. Go ahead. So I found um, I got a real new knowing that uh, every single time I moved my bracelet a few times, and uh, from in my head talking to that, it was always about I wanted it to be other than what it was every single time. And it was a new knowing that about that, and also the tone of what I used for complaining, because it wasn't a complaint if it was when it was a fact. Yeah. But when I changed the tone, whether it was about my husband or um, that I didn't like my child's diagnosis, I mean, that's a complaint, but you can do something, you can't do anything about the complaint. Mm. Um, or you can't do anything about what it is. Uh, I don't know, it was, it was just a new revelation, and I know See, I think that's true. I think it's tremendously important, Betsy, because I think in the moment that I think to myself, especially when I think to myself something disagreeable, I think that's just what is. Like, I'm an anxious person. It turns your blind switch to compassion. It's just what it is. Can't do anything about it. So I can have compassion for myself. It's hard to go through a world with what you know, with any or all of these things. You know, um, I think it's really an extraordinary thing. Timid people, they 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 do something. It's I, I'm thinking about all my grandchildren, and you know, somebody does something that other people would just do naturally, and one of my more timid people does it. They say, great, you did that. You know, it, because it's harder for those people to do it, and they can't have it not harder. It is. So who else had the bracelet and noticed something? happy to hear that. What else? Yeah. It really picks up the it picks up the mood in the room to I mean there's a million things we could say and to say puts down the mood, what we can say. 
I really had trouble dealing with it as other than I, I picked up this morning at the beginning you made some rather positive remarks about complaining. Yeah. And when I turned to it last week, I had trouble, you know, see, I also found really mostly positive things about it, both ways. Mm -hmm. I felt that if I was listening to somebody complain, I was learning something about them. Mm -hmm. Also, so often they entertained me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in the reverse, if I complained, <laughs> sometimes I got some feedback that was useful to me. Mm -hmm. And so I really had, I, I, I have to say a good word for complaining. No, I, 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 <laughs> remind me of your first name. Sue. Sue. I think it's very important because we talked about that last week. About, and I told you the story about some years ago, because this is very important for me. I also learned, I was talking on the telephone to uh, the person who was at that point my spiritual director. And I was listening to myself and talking about this and that and the other. And at some point, I realized that I had been complaining and complaining, like so put upon. And I got tired of listening to me. And I, and I suddenly was taken aback because I thought, oh, this poor guy, he's probably really also tired of listening to this litany of woe. And I said, uh, you know, I really don't like the way I sound today. I'm keeping on, you know, I'm really complaining. And he said, how will you, uh, he said, well, he said, uh, how will you know how you feel unless you hear what you say? So that's exactly what I think you're aiming at, Sue. So uh, there's a certain, there's a certain, um, I think that what happened for me in that particular relationship because I, actually it was a relationship in which you're sure the other person loves you. So, and actually, in which you're also sure that the other person is really seriously interested in the climate of your heart. That's what one's relationship is with one's spiritual director. They really are interested in the climate of your heart. So that when you, it, it, it wouldn't make any sense to say everything feels like it's great and coming up roses today, because it isn't, because the, you know, the, um, the nature of that relationship is to unfold the, your own personal journey and, the, and the, the, the vicissitudes of your own heart with someone else who's willing to hold your journey in their mind and heart for you. That's what the function of a spiritual director is. They don't direct you. They, they witness your story and hold it for you. So I thought it was very important. With my closest friends uh, that uh, actually love me, know me very, very closely, I could feel free to say to them, I'm so distressed about this, infuriated about this. And they could say, okay, you have three minutes to vent. <laughs> now, so it's a vent to complain. You say, this one said this, can you believe this? And at that point, it starts to amuse me. I mean, it's ridiculous what I have made a big brouhaha out of. So sometimes, having been given permission in the sanctity, it's like if you went to a doctor because something hurt you, and they said, you know, where does it hurt you? And you said, nothing hurts. That wouldn't get you anywhere. You know, you have to tell somebody what's the matter with you. And so maybe in that situation, it's not a complaint. It's a, um, it's a report of the current contents of the mind in such a way that they can be seen and explored mutually. So, Julie. Uh, I, I wasn't here last week. But I, what, what occurs to me are the kinds of things that make me steam inside. Um, and I just wanted to ask how you view those kinds of things, like 
these economy refrigerators that used to last 40 years now last five years if you're lucky and you're, it's considered good for the environment. Those kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm steaming. It's, uh, so I guess I'm, I don't, I guess that's complaining. But on the other hand, it, I, I feel, I also feel impotent and I march with Grandmothers Against the War and stuff like that. But that's what makes me steam. I'm so much better about my family. Oh, what a blessing to yeah. get, get along better with my family and not have complaints. But about other things, uh, I can hardly hold down yeah. my rage and disappointment and fear. So, you know, let's talk a little bit, because I went home also and I thought a lot um, about protest. You know, I also talked to Donald a lot. Donald and I were in a workshop together with, we went to a retreat together with Sokni Rinpoche here last week. It was a great thing, by the way. I'll tell you a few things about that if we end up with time. But uh, Sokni Rinpoche gave a two-day retreat for teachers. So the whole teacher council, 21 of us, and Sokni Rinpoche for two days, which was great. Anyway, talking to Donald, and you know, Donald is a huge social activist. He's written that book on informed, engaged Buddhism. So we're talking about, is that complaining? You get out and say, this is incorrect. And he said, well, it, it, it's not complaining so much as stating what one thinks is the obvious. I think this is not a correct way for it to be. It's not, it shouldn't be this way. Uh, I think it's not so much it shouldn't be this way. It is this way because people have behaved in a certain way. But not so much it shouldn't be this way, and I'm furious, but it could be different. It could be different, mm -hmm. and let's all get out there and make it different. I think when we go out and we protest or march with the Grandmothers for Peace, what we want to say is it could be different. It's this way, and this is not good for our children. That's not a complaint. That's actually a, 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 a discernment, you know, which you know, probably we, most of us would agree with. Who else had a bracelet and did the homework? Yeah, go ahead. suggested it last week I did an assignment a can't complain assignment that James had given in his Thursday night class the week before and it was when you catch yourself complaining to stop and say and my life is full of blessings uh -huh. and what I found after two weeks of doing it that was that I stopped complaining and started saying my life is full of blessings yeah. <laughs> without the I didn't need the complaint anymore to experience the gratitude. The gratitude became the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great piece of information because that may be how it works. Because what happens when you don't go there, one of the things that the, a complaint is putting you in an adversarial situation with the situation. Really, not to make you wrong, Julie, but when we're furious at something, the mind narrows down. Mm -hmm. Is it an adversarial situation? We're not in an adversarial situation the mind relaxes and it has a wider scope and it's possible to see that you know, there's more in the life than this particular uh, upsetting piece. And um, maybe to make a more skilled choice of what you're gonna really, I have a story to read to you about that, but I wanna hear about other people that had the homework, if you did the homework. So that's the end of the homework, you did it? Anyway, I'm very interested in it because I, what I see in myself is it uh, primarily is that it um, awakened that piece of my mind that pays attention to it. So if I'm about to grumble, I you know, 
just as, you know, grumble as a habit. You know, we grumble sometimes as a gossip habit. Can you believe what's happening? You have your hair cut. You know, what, what are you going to talk about with the hairdresser? Can you believe what happened with so-and-so? Or you're just reading the magazines in the, in the hair salon. Can you believe about Britney Spears or this or that? Why, you know, it's not, it's not edifying. It's not uplifting. It's a, a kind of a social norm to talk about what's in the magazines or what's in the daily news, but maybe we don't have to do that. Maybe we could have a different kind of talk. But I think that what we're really getting at now is that the mind closes down when it's mad because it's in an adversarial situation and it doesn't really see. So I thought I'd, I'd read you this. Uh, was I going to stop with this? Start with this. Da, 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 da. Okay, we'll start with it because I didn't see what I was going to start with. Okay, and I want to talk about Sokni. This is out of last week's news. Julio Diaz has a daily routine. Every night, the 31-year-old social worker ends his hour-long subway commute to the Bronx one stop early so he can eat in his favorite diner. Last, one night last month, as Julio Diaz stepped off the number six train and onto the nearly empty platform, his evening took an unexpected turn. He was walking toward the stairs when a teenage boy approached and pulled out a knife. He wants my money, so I just gave him my wallet and I told him, here you go, Diaz said. As the teen began to walk away, Diaz told him, hey, wait a minute, you forgot something. If you're going to be robbing people for the rest of the night, you might as well take my coat to keep you warm. <laughs> the would-be robber looked at his would-be victim, like, what's going on here, Diaz says. He asked me, why are you doing this? Diaz replied, if you're willing to risk your freedom for a few dollars, then I guess you must really need the money. I mean, all I wanted to do is get dinner, and if you really want to join me, hey, you're more than welcome. <laughs> You know, Diaz said, I just felt maybe he really needs help. Diaz said he and the teen went in the diner and sat in the booth. The manager came by, the dishwashers come by, the waiters come to say hi. Diaz said, the kid was like, you know everybody here. Do you own this place? No, Diaz says, I just eat here a lot. He says, but you're even nice to the dishwasher. Diaz replied, well, haven't you been taught you should be nice to everybody? Yeah, but I didn't think people actually behave that way. <laughs> Diaz asked him what he wanted out of life. He just had a sad face, Diaz said. Teen couldn't answer, or he didn't want to. When the bill arrived, Diaz told the teen, look, um, I guess you're going to have to pay this bill because you have my money. And, and I can't pay for this. So if you give me my wallet back, I'll gladly treat you. The teen didn't even think about it, Diaz said. Return the wallet. Diaz said... I gave him $20. I figured maybe it'll help him. I don't know. Diaz said he asked for something in return, the teen's knife, and he gave it to me. Afterwards, when Diaz told his mother what happened, she said, you're the type of kid that if someone asks you for the time, you give him your watch. <laughs> Diaz said, I feel, you know, if you treat people right, you can only hope they'll treat you right. That's as simple as it gets in this complicated world. I was on NPR last week, you know? How is that for a non-adversarial response, you know? And, I, I, and when I read it, somebody emailed it. My daughter emailed that to me, and she said, here, you'll like this for your class. And I think about, uh, there, there, you know, stories, cross-tradition of, uh, do you remember in uh, Les Miserables, 
Do you remember that uh, uh, Jean Valjean is given, uh, given, uh, taken in, in, after he gets out of prison, he's taken in by the vicar of some town, and in the night, the very first night he's out of, out of jail, he uh, realizes that he can make off with the candlesticks that, the, and you feel terrible when you read this, he's just gotten out of jail. Puts the candlesticks in a sack and he runs off with them and he's apprehended on the road the next day and they bring him back and the vicar says, no, I gave them to him. Mm -hmm. You know, that, mm -hmm. that, that, that they're all through, in, there's a Zen story about uh, a Zen monk who comes home to his very plain cabin in the woods and finds that some robber has been in there and taken absolutely everything in the cabin. It is stripped bare. There's nothing. And he said, and he looked out the window, and there was a full moon. And he said, that's such a beautiful moon. I wish I could have given him the moon as well. You know, to have a mind that will not take anything as an insult, that will not rise in uh, protest to anything. Can you imagine having a mind like that? I cannot. But I would love to. I would love to. I would just really, to be able to say, not because I'm, a, I'm somehow a simpleton and I don't realize I could use the stuff, but the line in here that gets me so much is, you must have really needed that money to risk your freedom for it. If you're going to be out here all night, you're going to be cold. You know that, that, that actually seems to me the mind that goes ahead and absolutely out of compassion, out of wisdom and out of compassion. That's a person, also the other piece of the wisdom in that is there but for the grace of whatever, go I. If I had been in that person's circumstance, who knows what I would do, you know? Think to yourself, every time I'm, I'm just reading Les Miserables again, and I think to myself, I always get upset when I read that part where he's just going to bed and he starts to think about the candlesticks and I think, I think to myself, don't do it, don't do it. As if I haven't read the book before and I don't know that he's going to do it. You know, it's like at the end of Romeo and Juliet where, he's, where you're thinking to yourself, don't take the poison, don't take the poison. You know, she's going to get up, you know. Because uh, uh, you don't want somebody to do something so badly. But you realize in their circumstance, they can't do other. That, you know, just getting left out of jail after 20 years of serving, you feel like a slave. You feel like a criminal. You behave like a criminal. And to know that about somebody else, really to, to somehow not resent being imposed upon, seems to me to be the biggest piece of, of work that we can do. The, the, um, the opening lines of the Dhammapada are twin verses. I can't do them exactly. He robbed me, he abused me, he insulted me. Anyone who keeps these thoughts in mind uh, keeps suffering with them. Suffering follows them as the cart follows the ox. He robbed me, he abused me, he's insulted me. Anyone who lets go of these thoughts, happiness follows them like their shadow. You know, that, the, you know, that, you did this to me, you did this to me. Yeah. I get put on hold for 20 minutes. I can't reach a person. I finally get to someone. They say, oh, 
maybe even pay someone to come. <laughs> and I'm just starting to think, there's no way I'm ever going to get help here. I'm feeling just pretty hopeless about it. I get to Toronto. She says, maybe I can find someone in the store that can help you. I get to put on hold for another 10 minutes. At this point, all hope is kind of fading. And finally, this guy gets on the line, and he says, write this number down in case you get disconnected. And he says, okay, what happened? And I said, well, I'm on the first step, and I'm already stumped. And he said, oh, boy. You know, he was just like, and he was wonderful. He said, okay, let's go through it. And he just walked me through the whole thing. Oh. And then he, uh, I said, well, you know, I'm, on, I'm not on a cordless phone. I've got to go do it in the other room. I'll hang up, and I'll call you back. And he said, well, you have to really call me back, because I'm going to worry all day. Oh. Uh. So that's a, actually it's a great story. What's your name? Jill. Jill. So what do you think is the, co the key component? Not that you know, it's not that complicated. In that story, it's not getting the desk fixed. Most people are kind. Yeah, it's the empathy. Most people are kind. Someone is taking care of me. You know, someone heard what I needed. I said help, and somebody said okay. You know, but mostly we don't actually feel that. You know that. Um, and it's touching, because they don't have to, but they do. Hmm? You don't have the expectation. You don't have the expectation. It's like when you go into a store, and um, in a strange country, uh, in a foreign country, and uh, you need hearing aid batteries, which is what happened to us most recently, a certain kind of hearing aid batteries and start to get instructions that are quite complicated. You have to go this way, then down a, a, a side road, and then it's in an alley, and then it's upstairs. And clearly, we're not getting the instructions right, and someone says, here, I'll take you. You know? Yeah. It's the same sort of a thing. Yeah. You know, I'll take you. And it, it comes out of, I think, first of all, I think it comes out of two things. It comes out of the genuine empathy that human beings have for other human beings based on you know the, 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 the intuitive awareness that we're all having a hard time getting through this life from the beginning to the end, from anything as not hugely consequential as the desk or the hearing aid batteries to whatever else, a, a physical illness, any kind of a thing. You know, uh, I'm very, very uh, sensitive to uh, what I think is the changing way in which medical personnel, this is my recent experience with mammograms and a few other things, are more forthcoming with reassurance. I think they must be taking courses in how to be with people, that they're a little bit more forthcoming, not so mysterious about you'll hear from us sometime. You know, they say, they say things like, at this moment, I'm not worried. You know, I'll, we'll have to get back to you with definite news. But really somehow suggesting that they are aware that this is just their job, but for you, this is a momentous moment that may really change your life incredibly. And that remembering to call you by your full name makes a big difference, like, you rem like you're a person still and not a statistic or an illness. It just makes a big difference. I think they must be giving courses, and I'm, I'm not sure, but, yeah. This is, I'm Joellen, and I want to mention, I'm not saying she's responsible, which came first.
but a good friend of mine who lived at Green Gulch a few years as a monk is now in the corporate training department very high up at Kaiser Permanente in Oakland. Yeah. And so she's training doctors uh -huh. how to be more empathic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's very small things. Tell me, I don't have to tell you. What are the small things that your doctor does that make you feel reassured? I can think of a couple. Mine tells you jokes when you Tells you jokes? Yeah? So somebody had a... That's great. Yeah. That's great. What else? My oncologist attends the church that I go to, Unity, and uh, he wears a heart, beautiful heart on his tie, and he always gives me a hug afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. What else? Um, I went in, you know, for a routine appointment, and the doctor called me soon after and said, I want, make an appointment in a month. I'd like to just keep an eye on you. And it was kind of like, oh, okay. I didn't because I didn't need to, but still, I thought that was really. And you didn't go back? <laughs> <laughs> now I transform myself instantly into your mother. <laughs> Okay. All right. Anybody else want to be her mother? Very, you know. Get a name on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think there's a couple of things that we learned. First of all, how a small kindness gets remembered forever, mm -hmm. forever, forever. My endocrinologist, you email directly if you have a question to ask him, and you get an answer within an hour on your email. And it's not just me. There's a, there's a small group of people, a big group, I suppose, and a lot of people that I know in the Bay Area with, get, with aging bones who say, oh, him, they, you know, in a, in, within the hour you hear back. So. As a former health professional, 
it's always nice to have a patient come back to you and say, oh, by the way, that problem I had was solved, or uh, I thank you so much for your support, um, because yeah. a lot of times the health professionals don't hear back from mm -hmm. people. That's a very good thought, Elizabeth. But really, the the you know we'll get we'll get more bracelets for uh, we'll get the bracelet for not complaining, and the bracelet will we should maybe get bracelets for um, for thanking, you know, all over the place. You know, the supermarket people, the the people giving you the prescriptions and longs, all the people that you that really you don't say, or you just pick up the thing, thank you, but you know. Appreciation bracelets, yeah. I was thinking also when when I'm busy, I don't take the time to say I'll I'll tell you where to find them. The times I do, it's so rich for me when I'm the one giving the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know something about it. The great place to do that is in the aisles in uh, Longs while somebody is trying to read the fine print on something. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and you know something about those products that they're looking at. <laughs> they're people of a certain age who can't read the fine print. So I want to tell you something about Sokni last week, just at least while it's clear in my mind. First of all, how many people here have ever met Sokni Rinpoche? Lovely, right? Lovely. Oh, you were at the retreat last week, Esther. What do you want to say about him? It was the first time that I felt that liberation might be possible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it always seemed like, well, yeah, I mean, the Buddha, you know, he was the Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that was... So why do you think, I also got tremendously inspired by Sokni. What what particular thing that he did did you made you feel that way? Well, he, he taught a practice uh, that at least for a moment allows you to stop the grasping, stop all the stuff that we do, and just rest in your wisdom. Mm -hmm. And for that second, it was fantastic. You want to tell the practice? Well, I, I don't think you're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> I have the key to liberation, but I can't tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you a little bit about it. I'll tell you a little bit about it because actually he develops the instructions over three days and I really wasn't there for the three days of developing the instructions. But there are a couple of things that you get from him when you, when you see him. First of all, I think you are converted uh, to uh, faith. That's, that's, that's a good way to call it, that liberation is possible in this lifetime because he looks so completely at ease and natural. He looks really good in his own Self. He, he twinkles a little bit, you know. Um, he's funny, he's at ease. He's very, very bright, and um, he, there's something very settled about him. You feel good sitting with him. He had, you know, if you say something is woo woo, is he emanates good vibes. He does, he does. Uh, 
one of the really extraordinary moments in the two days that we spent together with him, uh, in which I felt tremendously lucky. So I thought I'd share it with you so I could share the merit of that luck. And then we'll come back to the practice. Is um, He was talking about the particular uh, ways that he teaches and uh, the components of Tibetan practice life, which actually include a lot of devotion, more than we do here as part of our regular practice. So I want to talk a little bit about that and maybe maybe think about how we could begin to think about putting devotion into it because there's something very touching about uh, devotion to the practice. Or We don't have here, as they do in the Tibetan tradition, devotion to the guru. We don't. Uh, we don't have deities in the same way. Uh, but, I mean, devotion to uh, the Dharma, devotion to the possibility of waking up, that uh, I think actually each time that this has actually been my thinking about the not grumbling and the not complaining, each time I see my mind about to go on to a complaint, what happens is that something happens, it startles the mind, and the mind for a moment doesn't like it. And then in the next moment, if I don't pay attention to it, it not only doesn't like it, but it starts to strategize about how to get rid of it. And it also starts to remember 10 other stories connected to this not like. You know, I don't like this moment, which reminds me of all those other moments that you did. It could elaborate in one second from that one moment of aversion. And it seems to me that the key point for myself in that practice is to notice the um, aversion or notice that somebody does something, it's offensive to me. And notice that my mind startles and is about to make a story which it can then resent. And, and it's kind of like they put a wedge in it right there and say, what happened is I'm startled and now I'm going to do something else. And if I catch my mind, my attention, before it runs with the story and all the various ways it could elaborate, and does something else. I could look out the window, I could think it's a gorgeous day. The whole rest of the life you can notice as being present. Each time I do that, I think to myself, that was a miracle, you know? I, I just, in that moment, subverted a habit pattern. And if I could subvert that habit pattern enough times, I can't not be startled because that, you know, the startle happens before you know about it. But to get startled and not go any more with it and say, but, you know, Look at those baby deer out the window. But, you know, why don't I cook for dinner tonight? And I subvert that pattern. It's a miracle of changing a mind pattern. And I can actually feel a sense of not so much pride, maybe joy in the fact that that's a possibility for a human being. Look at Sotni, and I think to myself, he's comfortable in this life. That means human beings can do that. I could do that. We could all do that. You know, doesn't mean I have to like it every bit of my life. But to say, you know, this is my life right now, and I'm okay. That's the way it is. The bigger story is that it's amazing. So I think there's something about, you catch it, that feeling of devotion. But the other thing that he taught, oh, so the moment that I wanted to share with you is he taught about devotion, he taught about the practices. And uh, then on one uh, morning, I have to watch the time, um, Ajahn Jumnian came up. Now, Ajahn Jemnian is a Thai monk in the Theravada tradition, and he speaks Thai, 
and he was here teaching. So he, it, you know, it's a different lineage of Buddhism. He's a Theravada monk. He is a, a Tibetan monk. And he came up to spend the morning, and these two uh, Dharma uh, venerables were going to discuss a fine point of how the mind works and how consciousness works. So Sokni Rinpoche, who speaks really quite good English, had with him his closest uh, um, translator, uh, um, a man from uh, Buenos, uh, Buenos Aires, uh, just a fantastic uh, uh, Tibetan scholar who speaks beautiful English. So when Sokni needed some refined point explained, Geraldo explained it. And uh, Ajahn Jemnian arrived with Am, who's his, who's his uh, Thai, uh, a young Thai woman, now living here, who's quite a fluent, wonderful translator, and Jack Cornfield, who's a reasonably talented Thai speaker from his time in Thailand. So they were the two of them because Jack was wanting to ask questions, but sometimes when he needed a point elucidated, he'd use Am to really explain it to Ajahn Jemnian, or uh, Am would explain what Ajahn Jemnian said. So we had a whole morning of a conversation between two people that actually was five people talking to everybody talking to everybody at the same time, back and forth and all these. And you didn't actually, you didn't actually uh, pay attention to those. I mean, you actually got the message with all these people. And I thought to myself, when in the life? I, I felt in the middle of it, first of all, I was really trying very hard to understand. It was very minute discussion of consciousness precedes or doesn't precede. I was trying very hard to understand what they were saying, which I mostly did. But besides that, I thought to myself, what an extraordinary opportunity to listen to these two venerables with three translators in the company of all my colleagues. It's a, such a gift. So I thought, well, I'll come and give this gift to this class so that by you know, you know, one degree of separation, I went as your emissary and saw this. And it happened right here with us, and the two of them bowing to each other. And Someone took, and every, of course, everybody wants us a photo op, you know. So uh, somebody took photos, and I'll bring some photos when I come back in six weeks of these two venerables bowing to each other and um, an extraordinary morning. But I want to end with uh, Sokni's teaching that he did say. Had a way of explaining just taking all this fray in the mind when the mind is full of stuff and you really can't settle down. He said, you just take all your energy and push all that stuff down into your bottom of your being where it should be so that the mind can dwell peacefully. And he used the analogy of one of those European coffee pots where you put in the coffee grounds and you put in the hot water and then you plunge it down slowly so that all of those coarse grounds are plunged down. Did he do that with you when you were there? Did he talk about the coffee pot plunging yeah. down? Apparently it's an analogy that he frequently uses. He pushes, you push this uh, down into your very bottom of your being. And he said, then the mind can just uh, recognize easily that what comes up are just momentary appearances, feelings of fear, feelings of anger, feelings of um, dismay, feelings of uh, desire, feelings of aversion. But it sees them come up in the mind and knows them to be apparitions, just momentary um, arisings of feelings. Not that they're not 
felt, not to say that they don't mean anything though, those emotions, but they are seen in their um, porous nature. They're seen to be momentary uh, arisings, that this fear isn't a constant fear. This alarm is just here this moment. This aversion is just here this moment. This dismay is just arisen with cause, with cause. And that's what happens to human beings. But to be able to see them and say, okay, this is here right now. This dismay, this despair, this alarm, this fear. It's what's arising now, but it's not the essence of me. It's what's come up in my mind, and I can acknowledge it, and I can rest and know that it's there. And somehow, I hope I said that right to you, because it's to acknowledge its being, but to also be aware of its temporality. Somehow, uh, makes the possibility that its hold on the mind is less, that the mind does not identify with it. It isn't me, it's just here in this moment. And one of the teachers of um, Sokni Rinpoche was Nyosho Kempo. And uh, I remembered that there's a particular verse uh, from Nyosho Kempo that I looked up yesterday because as I was remembering this to tell it to you, I was remembering that uh, the instruction starts out, rest in natural great peace. It's a lovely line, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara, Rest in natural great peace. So I like that a lot. It doesn't say that those thoughts and those feelings don't come up, but that just for a moment, just for a little bit, and just recognize them as possibility that the mind in its own inherent purity can rest in natural great peace. So it's 10.59. We have to sit for a minute, or we can sit for a minute. I need to tell you that when we're finished sitting, I need to race out the back door because at um, 11.20, I'm supposed to be in my car going to the airport. Um, I have a message for Gary Scales. Gary? No Gary Scales? Can we have a brief announcement? Yes. Brief, brief. Uh, uh, many of you know Mary Oliver's writing, and she's speaking at Dominican College tomorrow night. And I'm sort of stuck, because when I bought the ticket six months ago, I live in Berkeley, I thought, I can do that. But the truth is, I can't drive at night by myself. So I wondered if any other people are going from East Bay, or if anybody would like to buy my ticket. Aha. Uh -huh. Doesn't look like that's happening. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a really great opportunity. By tomorrow night, uh, I'll be in Europe, so <laughs> I can't go to Mary Oliver, uh, but I'll be back in June. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you. And Donald will be here. I'll be back in June. Uh, I'll think about you on Wednesdays. I will, because uh, I always know when it's Wednesday. Uh, 
And I'm always glad to know that I can come back and that you'll be here and that I'll be here. So um, for the merit that we accrue from coming here together and studying together and being together and sharing our hearts together on behalf of our own desires to come to be able to rest in natural great peace, may the merit of our coming together be offered freely for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you especially to the people who weren't here before, who came to visit. You are welcome at any time. We are always here. Even I'm not here. Donald is here. The group is here. So come anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.